correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. radiocom Welcome to Me and Steve Talk RPG, the podcast where me and my friend Steve try and help you get the most out of your role-playing game experience. Hey folks, welcome back to Me and Steve Talk RPGs. I'm Steve. There's a Steve over there. Hi, Steve. And there's a special someone waiting in the wings, but we'll get to that in a minute. Before that, I'm going to take a minute and talk about another podcast here on the D20 Radio Network, that being The Story Told. Yes. I love story told podcasts. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, Logan Griffin and Kim are the hosts over there. And they're kind of a, I think they self-describe as an RPG variety podcast. They do some actual play. They do some discussion stuff on various things. A lot of stuff around a lot more narrative and very indie games as a general rule, but not exclusively. So uh, yeah, you can check them out. I know they're, I believe one of the actual plays they've currently going on is a Promethean Created game. So uh, very interesting stuff. I know they had a really, really good, uh, fairly long, uh, exalted actual play as well called The Fall of Giara that uh, they wrapped a while ago. But uh, yeah, you can check them out. There'll be a link in the show notes if you want to go look up that podcast. Again, it's called The Story Told. And uh, I think with that, let's let's launch into uh, our fun for this week. Yeah. You want to introduce our guest, Steve, or do you want me to? Uh, I could do it. <laughs> okay. So we have a very important guest. Uh, you've heard him on the show before. Been a little bit. Oh, he hasn't been on the show. I thought he was. Nope. Oh, geez. I am backwards today. My bad. Well, we <laughs> I know where I'm messed up. We talked to him in person at Gamer yes. Nation Con. That's yes. where I'm messed up. So we had a conversation with this guest, uh, just not recorded in any way. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, but we have uh, Mr. Keith Kappel today. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, happy to finally have you on. Yeah, we've been talking about it for uh, ten months or something like that. So yeah, a minute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You were one of those people meeting you at Gamer Nation Con. It was one of those. I don't know what I envisioned you looking like, but that was not what I envisioned. <laughs> I'm a uh, uh, large among my people. I would say among the uh, uh, game writing developers, they're usually a, a tiny, like a you know five seven and below people but for whatever reason the the star wars and genesis crew a lot of us are just over six foot over 250 pounds big big because sam's not a tiny, tiny no sam's not a small guy either. yeah we're a bunch of big bodies working on these big books <laughs> but yeah no and like i said it was it was fun you know we got to chat for a while and you and the other person again who again i don't know what i envisioned them looking like <laughs> but meeting scott zumwalt was a trip in a way <laughs> like just because again, like I said, I don't know what I thought he looked like, but that was not what he looked like. <laughs> uh, I love Scott. Scott's the best. Uh, uh, oh yeah. One one of the the reasons that we still get Genesis books probably because of the strength of the he's built around the Genesis community. So yeah, yeah, I completely agree. That was I, I think Gamer Nation gone last year was a really fun experience. Again, just a plug for that convention, but just sitting down with you two and having. And wild conversations about tabletop RPGs and wherever the story led or wherever the conversation went it was a blast. 
And uh, I don't know. I think this, we were talking before Steve got here. You're you are coming again this year, correct, Keith? Yeah, I'll be there. It's my favorite convention of the year. I don't miss it for anything. It would be, you know, there would have to be war, famine, something horrible. One of the horsemen of the apocalypse would have to stop me from making it down to uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area for that one. Because I, I just have such a good time. And it, I don't have to work. There's like no expectation of me doing anything at that convention, which is awesome for me because you know i'll go to like a gen con or something with uh with uh edge studios and like man i'm running game the whole weekend i'm exhausted my brain gets fried and it's fun but it's also you know it's work and at gamer nation con it's like i'm just seeing my friends hanging out uh people most people there have either like read my work or played one of my games so that's fun whereas in a gen con you know i'm pretty uh anonymous among the 80,000 people, most of which are there for D&D. So for those of you who, who may not realize, Keith has worked on an absolute ton of stuff for Fantasy Flight Games, uh, is the simplest way to put it. Titles in all three of the Star Wars lines, in addition to a bunch of the books that weren't in any one of the particular lines, which at least three or four of I own, I'm not sure. I think I worked on all those but one, actually. Uh, I didn't get to work on Starships and Speeders and more than a little salty about it. Uh, I think at the time it came out, uh, we were working on something else at the time. I want to say it was the, the oh, Knights of Fate, I think it was, for the Force and Destiny line. So those two books were kind of developed at the same time. And uh, um, when they were picking teams, when the, the, the lead devs were picking teams behind the scenes, I ended up on uh, uh, Tim Flanders' book for Knights of Fate, which was great. I loved working on that book. Uh, and I love Tim, and it, I think it was his last book before moving to the art department. So, uh, um, but I, but unfortunately, I missed out. It was either that or it was Keyforge. It was one of the two. Might have been Keyforge. You don't list either of those in in the little bio you sent me. So, uh, Starships Keyforge or Keyforge? And, oh, Keyforge, I worked on Star. Oh, wait, yeah, Starship, Secrets of the Crucible. That's Starships, I did not though. Starships and Speeders, I missed because it was one of those other two books. It was either Knights of Fate or. Uh, Keyforge was being worked on like at the same exact time. Ah, okay. So okay, I, I, I mean, it sucks because uh, it's great because everybody wants more books. And at that time, I think FFG had like four in, in-house developers, like Sam and the Tims. I think everybody else was named Tim in the department for a minute. <laughs> it's true. Uh, it was because there was Tim Flanders, Tim uh, Cox, and. Uh, uh, Tim Huckleberry. Huckleberry there? Oh, yeah, Huckleberry was there too. So it was just like Sam and the Tims. They sounded like a, a, a 50s Motown group or something like that. But uh, uh, yeah, it was a weird time. But they would work on four books, and the way their cadence was is they'd all be running a book at the same time. So if you're a writer and you just, like me, wanted to work on every single book they made, like you, you just couldn't because they didn't stagger it. So it's like you got one of the four books. Aha. Uh-huh. And then it looks like you worked on most of the stuff for Genesis other than the core book. And Taranoff. I think that's correct, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think you are right. Plus, it uh, looks like you've got some stuff for Legend of the Five Rings, and then you've got several titles, probably the best note of which, which you put out of the Foundry, which is Ready Flight, which everyone kind of just considers the unofficial Bible for unarmed combat in Genesis. Uh, I appreciate that. Ready Fight was, uh, I think I wrote the whole thing in like seven or eight weeks or something like that. We had a pretty small timetable to do that, like, launch line of products for the foundry when they first when it first came out and uh um i i just knew exactly what i wanted to do and and thankfully uh uh 
it was something people were excited about. So I'm proud of that book. And then I guess what your most recent release is your driving equivalent to that book, your ground vehicle, <laughs> Just Drive. Just Drive, I, yeah. I love the simplicity of your names. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, everything gets an exclamation point, and uh, I try to keep it to like two words. Yeah, Just Drive is great. I only I did that because the vehicle rules... I found that I didn't use them very often, and that was because they intimidated me as seeming different. So Just Drive was me uh, doing a little bit of professional development and forcing myself to uh, uh, stare the beast in the eye that is the vehicle rules and learn them and uh, expand on them where I felt was necessary. Okay. Yeah, I ha- I've got a couple ideas that that would have been or would be extremely useful for, and I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet. But... Uh... Uh- it is it is in the pile, which is unfortunately extremely tall. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. Uh, Just Drive is also enormous. It's like, I don't know how many pages, but uh, it's like twice the size of Ready Fight, almost, something mm-hmm. like that. So it's like a full 200-page release type of thing. Uh, it's a lot. Okay. Well, I didn't realize it was quite that big. Okay. It's enormous, yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, I don't know what all we're going to talk about today. But uh, I had thought, you know, one of the things that you have have been pretty passionate about in in other interviews I've heard with you is is obviously writing RPG stuff. And so, like, how did you get into freelancing? I know, you know, GM Chris has told me, you know, he first met you when he you were quote just a fan. That's true. That's true. I've known uh, Chris Witt and Dave Lagas for. Oh my gosh. I I don't even know how many years before I started getting work, I first met them, but me and my good buddy, Ryan Brooks, who also did uh, uh, a fair bit of writing on the Star Wars RPG line, uh, we were both fans. We developed a website called Fandom Comics, where we did Star Wars fan comic books, and then uh, we started filling it out with like some fan fiction and some fan RPG material. And we did this thing for uh, like the D20 and the Saga era stuff called the Clone Wars fan source book. And uh, uh, we did that from like 2005 until probably 2012. So for like that seven year period, we were promoting it where, you know, anyone who would let me promote that, hey, there's free Star Wars RPG slash comic book slash fiction content on my website. We were promoting it forums all over the place. And, uh, um, you know, obviously... Order 66 uh, podcast was one of the big places where we could promote it. And, you know, they liked what we were doing. So we were lucky enough that they mentioned it a few times on air. And uh, so, yeah, I've known them for a long, long time. And then uh, uh, while we were doing the Phantom Comics site, I started meeting some of the people who worked in the industry, notably uh, Sterling Hershey, who uh, uh, we all know and love, uh, who worked on like every iteration of the Star Wars RPG so far. I was a fan of his and uh, um, I was going to like the Star Wars celebration conventions and I would keep running into Sterling Hershey like wherever I went I would turn around and there he was and this is like you know there's tens of thousands of people at this thing and I swear I wasn't stalking him Uh, but we kept showing up at like the same there would be like a writing panel taught by Troy Denning or someone like that and of course we'd both be there because it aligned with our interests so I kept bumping into him I had introduced myself he's very gracious and, uh, um, you know, we became friends after two conventions, three conventions of that happening. So he had already been like, he already had the network and knew that the Star Wars license for the RPG was coming to FFG. 
and uh, um, he knew about it and he knew they were doing an open call. And uh, one of the times I was talking to him, he's like, hey, you and Ryan, my friend working on the site, you guys should apply for this open call because that's where the Star Wars license is going to be. And I know you guys want to be on it. So I said, that's awesome. And uh, me and Ryan spent, I don't know, uh, a week, a week and a half, like refining our submissions, trading, grading them like 35 times each. You know, just back and forth, like maybe there shouldn't be an is there, or, you know, whatever, like real nitpicky kind of stuff, trying to make them as good as we could. And I did a, a Rancor monster uh, in the style of, I think it was like Warhammer Fantasy, Fantasy Edition, which was not a game we had ever played or known. So uh, um, I did a Rancor monster in that, and he did like the Nexu Beast from uh, episode two. And those were our submissions. We sent them in. Uh, with, you know, our cover letters and resumes and all that. And uh, now I had a degree. I had a, a creative writing a fiction degree from uh, Columbia College, Chicago. And me and Ryan had been working for the past seven years to get our, our skills up in all these fan supplements we had been producing. So we just got lucky. Uh, my name got pulled out of the hat early for Sons of Fortune. That was my first job. And then about six months later, they picked Ryan's name completely independent of me you know, I had nothing to do with that. He just got in on his own, uh, on the steam of his own submission. Uh, and his first book was like the Hut Space book, I think. So, uh, um, yeah, we were both in the door and started working on lots of books. Uh, eventually, we got to work on one together. The Friends Like Lee's Adventure was one that he and I got to write together completely, which was sort of a, a, a cool capstone considering where we had both started. And yeah, that that's kind of how I got in the door. And uh, um, I just was... Tenacious enough to make sure they didn't close the door in my face afterward, I guess. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds like just sort of, how do you want to say it? Like the pieces just came together with the passion and it worked. Yeah, I mean, I got lucky, of course, that uh, uh, the moment, like maybe months after I had graduated college with my degree, um, that's when the open call existed. They didn't do another one after that for 10 years. So it's not like these things happen often. So that that lining up timeline-wise was lucky. I had broken my leg maybe two years before that, and that was the only reason I went back to college, because I couldn't bartend, I couldn't work anymore. So the only way I could make money was to go back to school and get my GI Bill for my time in the military. So I wouldn't have been back in school if I hadn't broken my leg playing paintball with uh, uh, friends like two years prior. Uh, so there, there were a lot of like weird little funny life events where... If it didn't go the weird lucky way it did, or unlucky, I guess, breaking your leg, uh, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. It's weird to think about. Yeah. Now, a question, and I, I don't, you know, a lot of times, you know, one of the questions we'll ask a lot of creators is, is, you know, where do you draw inspiration from? And I would guess, and you're free to answer that, obviously, however you want, but am I correct also in thinking that because, in your case, you've worked on so many of these, you know, they went, here's this project, write something for it. Does that help hurt or is there like, do you stream things together somehow? Um, so I think there's, especially when you're talking about writing for any sort of uh, established IP, there's generally like two different kinds of writers that I meet. There's the writers who hate the idea of any sort of like canon restraint on what ideas they want to bring to the table. Like that really hurts them and they feel boxed in. And there's people who, um, out of those restraints come new ideas, and, and they, it helps, helps to have some dirt on the canvas already before you start painting. Uh, I'm definitely falling to that latter category, where like the more metal it is, and the more there is for me to like 
tease apart in there and like find something that interests me, that's going to give me my window into whatever I'm doing. So I like that um, personally. Now I can work on a totally blank page too. Like I said, I do have some formal schooling on writing. So like I have no problem doing my own thing either. But but I tend to prefer, I, I mean, I love writing on Star Wars and I was a big uh, Expanded Universe nerd like before that got sort of wiped away and reset with the Disney acquisition. And, and I was just happy to, happy as a clam. You know, you see all these books behind me, right? That's almost, I think this is just the Star Wars shelf behind me. Oh, geez. So like the one way over there is where the other stuff starts. It looks so. like it's about seven to nine feet wide and at least four tiers high that I can see in the shot. Yeah, I mean, it's it's big and it goes up higher than I think the, shot, the thing even shows. At a certain point in this industry, you have to start buying like library grade bookshelves. So uh, just like <laughs> giant units instead of like the standalone six foot bookshelves. So the particle board does not hold up well. No, in RPG no, it's books. just not enough. Just Dude, not that enough. or milk crates. Right. And that <laughs> looks a whole lot more presentable. Yeah. And then the comic books are in a whole nother room because there's too many of those. So uh, I was always a, a big reader. But yeah, I, I, I like that. I like uh, how much Star Wars there is out there, how no matter what I want to talk about, there's probably a starting place. But at the same time, the galaxy is so big where like, if I want to just go to a planet, make up a new planet and do something totally new there, there's space for that too, without it seeming weird. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and based on what I've seen and, and I never dove deep into the EU, but it seems like they're reusing some of that material, at least in name and general theme. Yeah, I'm a big advocate for recanonizing stuff that I like any chance I get. So, uh, uh, you know, I can't just do it without telling people they don't like that. But uh, I think it's it generally seems safe to recanonize like the existence of a planet or a piece of technology or a vehicle or a droid model or an alien species like that sort of stuff seems pretty safe. What's more dicey is talking about like individual characters and or uh, events like mm -hmm. that. That is a big, a much bigger mess canon wise. So that tends to get like more scrutinized, but I can't think of a time where I was like, I just want this thing to exist or this planet to exist like mm -hmm. in this piece of writing. And anybody's been like, you can't do that. I, I struggle to think of an example where that happened. So, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think it's fine. And I love so much of it because, like, I grew up with the expanded universe. So it still has a soft spot for me. And a lot of the stuff in there I thought was really cool growing up. But as far as, like, inspiration more broadly, I would say, uh, like, as much as I love my Star Wars, I draw a lot more inspiration from, like, my own real-world experiences. I was in the military. I was in the United States Navy. I was in intelligence specialist for four years from 1997 to 01, right before 9-11. My last day in the Navy was the day before 9-11. Yeah. And I spent half my time at Naval Space Command and half my time on an aircraft carrier, the Theodore Roosevelt. And uh, an aircraft carrier is about as close, I think, as you could get to actually working on like a Star Destroyer or whatever. Like it's a giant thing full of 5,000 people out in the middle of the ocean. So I think uh, some of those experiences allow me to bring like a certain amount of uh, uh, being able to imagine what it's like that that other people have to just make up or compare to a movie that they saw or whatever. 
Yeah, well, I would imagine, you know, just in that context, you, you've got the, the, the corridors and the limited space. Right. But then still, I would assuming, and I've never been on an aircraft carrier, but I would assume the underdeck hangar bays are bleeping huge. Yeah, they're enormous. Uh, the entire aircraft carrier itself, it's a quarter mile long. It's like if you took the Empire State Building and laid it down, you know, on Fifth Avenue or whatever. They're just bigger than your brain thinks things are supposed to be. And it's like three football fields worth of space inside that's like, you know, enormous. It's it's an enormous interior space. Uh, the only thing bigger is like a single inside space that I've seen that wasn't like a stadium is uh, um, NASA has that uh, uh, shuttle assembly building. It's, you know, you see it in movies all the time. It's real. looks like a uh, a block, just a big giant rectangular block just set in the middle of nowhere. And that that whole building is open inside and it's also incredibly enormous it's just it's so tall for having like nothing in the middle and uh, i got to go in there because when i worked at naval space command we got to go on uh, um we got to tour nasa uh, the admiral who ran the base had a buddy who was like a space shuttle pilot like that guy's living a different life than i was but uh but it was cool because i got to go on this to this guided tour where it was just like five of us and the admiral's buddy showing us around places in NASA where, you know, the, the normal tour doesn't usually go. So it was cool. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. So I would imagine that I know I've felt this way. I'm pretty sure Steve has felt this way. I'm sure a lot of the people listening to us have felt this way. We've all thought, boy, it would be cool to write RPG books. You're right. <laughs> what advice would you have? You know, like you said, you got a, you have a degree. You know, you were a super fan in a lot of ways. Is there like a, a path you would point people towards? Yes, there are a few actually. So first I'd like to say that, yes, I do have a writing degree and I think it's helped me immensely. I do not in any way think it's a, a requirement or a necessity that that's going to bar you from entry into the, to being a writer on an RPG. I think of all the professional writing work in the world, even I would say the barrier for entry to RPG writing is among probably the lowest in all forms of publishing. It also pays probably the lowest in all forms of publishing. So, so in a way that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, much harder if you want to write comics or you want to write novels. Unless you go a self-publishing route, getting that stuff professionally published is a lot harder than uh, uh, finding work in the RPG industry. I think that said, uh, your writing needs to be at a publishable level. And that's uh, something you can do on your own if you put a lot of effort to it, into it or, and or have a lot of talent. But it could take years to do on your own. I would recommend some sort of professional training or um, some sort of writer's group that you could join just so that your core writing gets up. I talk to a lot of folks who are developers who hire freelance writers for RPG books. And if you ask them, uh, hey, if you have a choice between two writers, one who uh, uh, is a really good writer but has never worked on this games or these rules or any of that, and your other guy is a a rules mechanic master, but he's never really tried to do any professional writing. Which one of those people would you rather hire? And they want the writer every single time. So, uh, you know, there a lot of times in this business, you're asked to work on a game where the game's not even out yet. So how could you know the rules, right? So the mechanical knowledge is certainly a, a help and it's a good thing to have, but uh, uh, being able to write is, is uh, infinitely more important. Mostly because one of those editors, when they get your work in, they could fix a bad statistics block in about in seconds. It doesn't take long. But if you wrote a really bad paragraph or page, like it takes hours to fix. 
So uh, yeah, the writing skills, I think, are the one thing that people uh, overlook the most when they talk about like, hey, I want to do this, because most of those people tend to be real interested in mechanics, but less interested in like repeating English class or whatever. So I would say that that's the number one thing as far as like getting your skills ready for it. The second thing is uh, you have to start uh, networking, which is a social activity that most of us in this industry are not the most comfortable in the world at doing, right? Like some of us struggle, not all of us, just some of us. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of those someones are introverted writers uh, that would love to work in the industry. But yeah, you have to you have to start doing that work now. And it, it's because uh, it takes time. To, I knew Sterling and had no like, ooh, I'm going to know this guy so I could get work. I just I was a fan and became friends with him. And two, three years later, there, an opportunity fell in my lap because of that. And how cool is it to get to for me to get to work on books with him now? But before I get too off path there, so uh, you want to network with the people whose work you like. Now, the people who do the hiring for the books, the people who work on the books, go be friends with them on social media. Go post, comment in their posts. You can drop them a DM and ask them, you know, polite questions that aren't, "Will you please help me find work?" Like is the second thing you say to them. Uh, but, you know, develop a network of contacts, people who know you're interested in writing and know you're looking for work, but who you're not asking for that. And if you build that network, when your skills are ready uh, to get the work, you'll have some opportunities. Uh, you'll at least hear about the open calls when they happen, or you'll hear about, hey, this new studio's opening up and you, you should email somebody over there and let them know you're interested, especially if it's like an IP or a rule system that you're also a fan of that that does seem to help. So th those would be my, my two biggest pieces of advice is get your writing skills up and start developing your network of professionals in this industry. One way to do both at the same time is to join my uh, Adventure Writing Academy, where we, we focus on sort of helping you uh, get your skills up and meet a bunch of people in the industry. So I was going to ask, and you kind of led led to this in a way, I've always felt like RPG books are this kind of weird thing where they're part fiction, part cookbook, part something else, part stat manual. And so like, I, I would guess, if, you know, like you said, I believe you said you had your degrees in creative writing. I would imagine there were a lot of skills that you learned in that that helped you, but there were a lot of other skills that you had to develop either on your own or through other means that also apply to this. And and I do actually, in, in the context where you were saying, like getting work, working on supplements, I would imagine, like you said, the stats part, they can fix easy enough. They're looking I, for stuff like that. Are they like for creatures? Are they looking more for concepts? No. They, I mean, most of, I mean, it's going to depend. Publisher by publisher, who's looking for what, how they divide up the work. It's going to change with each person that's running a book. My experience has mostly been with FFG Edge under Sam Gregor Stewart, and there they expect you to be able to do everything uh, uh, as far as writing. However, you're not expected to come up with ideas for a book. Other places, though, the only way to get work is to pitch the concept for a book, and if they like it, then you'll write that book. That's that's a thing at some places still. So So it really does vary quite a bit, and being able to pitch a good book is not the same skill as being able to write a good book. Uh, so that's like an extra challenge in my view and a lot of extra work you're doing before you are getting paid for it, right? 
like putting together a good book pitch is like a job in of itself and you kind of only get paid if they pick it. So I, I don't support that method of freelance hiring myself. But basically, uh, like if I get a job for FFG, I'll get an email that says, hey, Keith, we're doing a book about X. Do you want to work on it? Yes or no? Uh, you know, please circle and send the note back in class. So, you know, I'll say yes, of course. Then they'll send me a contract that really spells out. We want you to do, you know, 8,000 words in this section and another 7,000 words in this section. We need it done by such and such a date. And uh, here's a couple other dates for like turning in an outline, turning in a rough draft, that sort of thing. And if I sign up for it, then, I, then I'm in. And uh, uh, I have to write everything that's happening on those pages I was assigned, whether it's rules, whether it's uh, setting info, whether it's uh, stat blocks, you know, whatever it, it might be. It's usually not things that are hardcore mechanical stuff like uh, uh, character choice stuff like talents or careers, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. They tend to do those uh, in-house where they can test them before they even go to the play testers. Uh, at least th that's been the case at FFG Edge. I'm sure it's not the case everywhere. So yeah, it's going to vary a lot. Uh, and you kind of have to, I know uh, Sam likes to test people and just see what they can do and uh, uh, get a sense of what their range is and uh, make them try working on all sorts of sections until they find what, you know, till they find what they're best at or, you know, where they need work or whatever. So uh, um Lately, it seems I get the adversary section in every book I work on lately, but uh, which I don't mind. It's fine, but uh, um, that requires coming up with like a lot of abilities and uh, doing a lot of short writing, which is like uh, you know, there's some sections of books where you get to write like four thousand words in a row. That's one thing. Like uh, I did, Disciples of Harmony was a Star Wars book, and I think my direction was eight thousand words. Write about mentors and Star Wars and do what you want. And I got to break it up however I wanted. And that was real easy. That writes really fast. It's like highway driving because the, it, you, once you get going, you could just go until you run out of stuff to talk about. Whereas uh, uh, writing adversaries is a lot more like city driving where it's just start, stop, start, stop. Because each individual monster or character or whatever only gets like 100, 150 words of uh, text about it. And you have to, those are hard to craft. The shorter something is, generally, the harder it is to write, which is why titles are usually the hardest thing to think of. The, the longer something is, the more room you have to hide bad stuff, I guess, and, and just wander until you find the point. So longer stuff tends to be easier to write, weirdly. It's a little counterintuitive that way. I, I get it, though. Like it, it's, it's, you don't have to be as concise, and you can kind of get that stream of thought out. Right. I can write a thousand words way quicker than I could find the three perfect words for that or whatever. Right. So, mm -hmm. well, and you can also hide like in a sense of you can use frilly language to hide not great themes. And I don't mean not great themes as in like, like inappropriate. I mean, not great themes as in like simple themes. I'm right. a big fan of Isaac Asimov, but I'll be the first to admit that Asimov uses a lot of frilly language to describe what is effectively a room or a robot or, you know what I mean? Like, sure, sure. No, you could, you could uh, put lipstick on a pig if need be, which is what exactly. Like and that's that. with the length, like you were saying, short, short writing no it can be challenging. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you get to dress it up effectively. You know, sure. you can expound on it rather than having to be simple and elegant in a way, I guess is, yeah, I don't know. I wonder too, because 
GM Chris told me about a game you ran at a couple few Jamer, Gamer Nation cons ago, and this may play into you getting to design adversaries. He said you ran a Star Wars game at Gamer Nation Con where the PCs average somewhere in the neighborhoods of 1,500 to 2,000 earned XP. That is correct. That was uh, my epic level play adventure where every PC was like a member of the Jedi Council. So you had like Yoda and Mace Windu and Kenobi. Those were like the PCs. And uh, uh, it was during the Clone Wars or whatever. And it was... Uh, so I, I had heard this thing about uh, uh, the Star Wars rule system, which we later adapted for Genesis. For so long, I had heard this thing of, like, this game doesn't hold up at high levels of XP, and at a certain point, everything's overpowered and just doesn't work anymore. The dice mechanic starts to break down at higher levels. And I was like, okay, I accept that this is the going wisdom, but because most of my experience in running the game had been in, like, one-shots for conventions and such... Uh, I had never actually seen that in play myself. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to design an adventure that's high-level play and just see where things break down. Like, how, how impossible is it going to be to challenge six PCs that are members of the Jedi Council and are given, like, XP appropriately to reflect all the things we sort of see them do? Uh, and I was honestly uh, very surprised how well the game held up. The players, I mean, that people still talk about the game at all suggests that it was a good time, regardless. The the beef in the reef, I think, was a thing. We had like a, there was a fight against the Nautilin underwater that happened in that game. Kit Fisto fought like an Aqualish or something. I don't know. It was, it was a fun <laughs> game, though. And uh, yes, every dice roll or many of the dice rolls were like a fistful of red and yellow dice just all over the place. And yes, we had to run into triumph and despair on the same check and or multiple triumphs or multiple despairs like it happened more than once that night or like per session but you know and, and uh i certainly had to scavenge to get like four and five force dice for certain force power rolls for yoda and stuff but it was a good time i i think the the rules held up way better than i expected certainly the way people were talking about it now to be fair uh, all the characters were Jedi who have a lot more XP sinks in that set of, in that system than like Edge of the Empire characters might, where you kind of once you run out of the talent tree and you have like three of your skills at five ranks, what do you really need to spend XP on anymore? I don't know. But but uh yeah, I was surprised. I was surprised how well it held up. Mm -hmm. I'm considering I'm I'm just uh in the early stages now. So odds are it will not get done in time, and I will not do this. But I'm I'm looking to maybe run something actually at this Gamer Nation Con. You mentioned Just Drive, which is my foundry product for ground vehicles. I do have another book in the works, uh, release date TBD, probably a year out or more. But I I do have about a third of it written. It's called uh, I think right now I'm calling it I Captain, and it's a uh, uh, like a capital ships book. So like. Age of Sail, Star Trek style ships, that sort of thing. And uh, uh, the theme is Lord of the Rings for this Gamer Nation count. So I was thinking I could do a nautical themed adventure set during the Lord of the Rings and uh, using the Age of Sail style rules and see how it goes and test out some of the things I'm putting in the book. So I, I might have another adventure, my triumphant return. I haven't done an adventure at Gamer Nation Con. I haven't run anything in at least three or four of them. So. Mm -hmm. Well, you have my attention. I love a good sailing book. I'm um, I'm a sucker for some some pirate ships and sailing around and yeah, buddy. Well, now I got a a question 
and, and to, you can tell me if I'm completely off base, but it seems like a lot of the work that you did specifically on the Star Wars titles, but also looking at some of the stuff you've done for Genesis was more character location stuff based, we'll say, you know, gear equipment. I think early on, uh, they knew that I was like a Star Wars lore nerd and not all of their team was. A lot of the team they have on those books came from the, uh, 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 whatchamacallit that they were doing before, the Warhammer books. So a lot of the writing team had moved over from there, like Tim Cox, Jason Marker, John Dunn, like a handful of like the regular, regular names. And then they brought in a few new people, like Star Wars people, of which like Sterling was one. He came on before me. Um, I was one of those people they brought on, my buddy Ryan. So I think early on, they wanted to throw us a lot of the lore, the deeper lore type of stuff, because they knew that we would know it and we would probably get it right, as opposed to the more casual Star Wars fans, at least at the beginning of that system, uh, uh, of the you know the trusted writers that they had already broken from the uh, the Warhammer game. So so I think that's why I got a lot of that stuff early, and you know then slowly they started throwing me more and more mechanical stuff. Although in like my second job on that system, I came up with the homestead rules. That was uh, uh, my idea, and they ended up like repeating it for different flavors in the other game lines. I was proud of those. I did like the squad and squadron rules, I think was my third job uh, in the Age of Rebellion GM kit. So I got some mechanical stuff early too. Um, I did get to write a couple adventures. A lot of some, you know, I've hit a mix on Star Wars alone. I'd say I've done a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. but um, I only did weapons once, and I don't think I ever got to do the vehicles chapter because I think Jason Marker just owned it in like every book he did. <laughs> uh, which that's fine, I love Jason, so that's okay, and he loved vehicles, but uh, uh, yeah, I think mostly I, I did a lot of places, I did a lot of uh, people, and I did a lot of things, a lot of nouns for sure, yeah. Well. Where I was going with that is that then with the stuff you've released on the Foundry, specifically Ready Fight and Just Drive, are, and I know at least Ready Fight does contain like a, a micro setting type Four deal. Four of them, yeah. Four, yeah. Like, but I think those are also in service to the mechanics that you presented. But both of those books, in my perception anyway, are very, very rules intense. I agree. And I was just curious how that juxtaposition happened, or was this kind of an outgrowth of, okay, I've done all this other work for it. I've learned the rules. Now I'm going to play with them. Sure. Uh, I think you're right and you're wrong. Like I said, I've certainly done a lot of rules development stuff for both Star Wars and Genesis in the past. Like uh, on EPG, uh, Expanded Player's Guide for Genesis, I did like the vehicle and vehicle rules and those adversary creation rules and stuff. So I, I've gotten to play with a lot of that stuff, but uh, for ready fight and just drive specifically, I, I think the foundry in general for me is a chance to be like, what do I want to do that isn't really publishable? Like for FFG and edge, like what could like they could have never made ready fight because that's not a book that, can sell like they would need a book to sell to publish it right Mm -hmm. so in my view that's a perfect foundry product i know i know i'm never going to step on a job i could have had for real with this book because this is not like a a real publishable concept so yeah they're like high concept i do weird stuff with the rules in there i propose crazy ideas that would probably i mean sometimes they work out i think ready fight everything worked out pretty well but in general ready fight is probably too crunchy for edge to ever publish as like an official 
Genesis supplement and, and designed as such, like on purpose, uh, because it's like, what's my view of how unarmed combat should work if that's all you're doing? If that's like 90% of a campaign uh, and I can make it a little deeper and crunchier because we're throwing away vehicle rules and range combat like isn't really part of the setting. It's just unarmed combat. So you can get away with making things a little deeper and crunchier. I think that's sort of the view all these books take, including Just Drive and including the upcoming uh, iCaptain, should it ever see the light of day. Just Drive took like three years, so don't hold your breath. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, I think I think that's it. And I try to have fun with the mechanics. Like if I'm not having a good time and being entertained when I'm writing it, then it's just never going to get written. Uh, because it's our, I already don't have enough time to do Foundry products, uh, let alone do a Foundry product that feels like a, a chore. So those tend to just be like, I have this fun idea. It'll never work for real, but it could work for the Foundry. So let's let's give it a try. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, too, if like it was one of those things where I'm just going to make up a whatever. You really wanted to run a, a game based around you know, based off of like the Bloodsport movie. The old John Claude, right? And you're like, well, I want to do this, but I need rules to make it happen. It, to add depth to it, right? Because if you want to, you can get away with it for like an encounter right now in Genesis, I think, with just like all the rules as they are, where it's like, hey, we're going to do the tavern brawl, and it's just everybody's making unarmed attack, right? Uh, and maybe the occasional skill, but mostly just we're spamming unarmed attack everywhere. That could work for an encounter. It can't work for like a campaign. I would argue it can't even work for like an entire adventure. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I like, and I'm a big fan, me and my dad, uh, who actually passed somewhere in the middle between me starting writing that book and that book coming out. He passed. And me and him used to go to like the UFC fights together. We were big mixed martial arts fans, fight fans, and, uh, uh, you know, studied a lot as, you know, intense sports fans tend to do. So we were... You know, I had a buddy who had fought in the UFC, who I'd seen fight uh, Mike Lulo. So I, I was pretty informed about this sort of like mixed martial arts community and how that works in a sport sense. Uh, so I felt like I had the vocabulary and the understanding of the, at least how the sport views the like real world mechanics of how all that fits together. And that I could translate it to Genesis, which was a system I knew really well, um, as long as that's all we were doing, right? So, so that, that book came out of me really quick and easy. And yeah, it was just, it was something that I was into at the time. It just, you know, it struck me like, cause to me, that's where I sometimes go, I want to do this thing. And for me, my solution is usually go find a game that does that. Sure. (laughs) You know, does whatever that thing is. And then I'll learn that game and enough to, to do the thing, you know? And I was just wondering if for you, it was almost like a reverse of that process where you're like, well, I know this game. I'll make the rules to do the thing. Right. I will say uh, it's real easy for me to just make up rules for Genesis because I'm not precious about it, uh, which it, when you're a fan of a system, I think, and you're looking at the outside looking in, there's this tendency among some fans, not not all fans, but a lot of fans tend to look at, you know, rules as written, raw is chiseled in stone. And, and uh, uh, you know, if you're playing D&D and haven't seen a plus three bonus somewhere, that's because plus three bonuses shouldn't exist. It's one, two, then five, then 10, or, you know, whatever. Like there's these weird rules that people make in their head that uh, uh, I don't know how real they are. And in Genesis, like I could tell you when I'm making something like, I don't, 
I don't think about any of that. I just think, how would this work right? And what would be cool? And, uh, uh, and just, I just go for it and, uh, lean on the very excellent play testers and early readers for foundry products or Sam and play testers and editors and a bunch of other people for official stuff. But I kind of approach both the same way. Like, uh, uh, when I get tasked with doing like an adversaries chapter where it's like, you're doing 80 NPCs or something like that. Like, I try to make up like a special ability, just one for like every single adversary, uh, something interesting that's like uniquely theirs that I feel like if you're a player or a GM and you buy one of these books and you open it up and the adversary is just like a line of characteristics, a couple skills and two pieces of equipment, you'll be like, what? I didn't need to buy a book for that. You know what I mean? Like I could have, I could have picked a characteristic array and some equipment and some skills like that's not enough or even a talent or two, but if there's a special ability in there, you feel like, oh, there's something genuinely new uh, mechanically that I can latch onto and say, this is exciting me as a GM. I want to get this on the table and see how my players respond to it. Uh, so I, I think SQs and NPCs are an incredible selling point, despite having recently argued that they're not really necessary at all for GMs creating their own adversaries. Uh, despite that, I think they're an amazing selling point because people like them and they're, for me, they're fun to write anyway. So, yeah, I, I think uh, I'm not precious about the rules. I'm willing to experiment and try just really weird things. Like, I think in uh, um, Twilight Imperium, there's an NPC in there called, like, a Helpless Bystander or something like that. And uh, uh, it, uh, it has an ability that forces a player, like, if they fail a check or they succeed at a check, something like that, the player, like, has to go check on the bystander to make sure they're okay, which is just, like... A weird thing for an it's like a weird attack for an npc to have right so i like doing strange sort of things uh with npcs or trying to make the genesis rules do something people haven't seen before on every job i can tell you as somebody who's like read a couple of your books i appreciate that because there's only so many times i can see the same rules over and over again and adding some new flavor adding some new you know oh, well, this does this or adding, like you said, that really wild adversary. I appreciate that stuff because it adds some new life and longevity to a system that is feeling a little long in the tooth. Sure. I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah, I, I definitely I think more of my effort goes to that when it comes to anything mechanical than like making sure something's right or correct or whatever, because because I know there's a giant I'm you know fortunate when you're writing on the official stuff, especially there's. There's a huge safety net there to catch you on the mechanics if you're like objectively wrong about something. And Sam's there to be like, Keith, that's too far. Should I actually ever go too far? But they uh, they reel back far less than I ever expect them to. Like sometimes I'll write something being like, I know this is going to get cut, and I'm just going to do it anyway because it seems interesting. And then it ends up in the book. I'm like, oh, I didn't I didn't think they'd publish that. But it, I think it's more about me being in that. That headspace of feeling uh, free to just do whatever I want to do or want to try without like self-censoring myself before it even gets out the door, right? But isn't that a lot of like, I feel I feel that in my bones and I feel like I've had that conversation with friends that are writers of like, stop trying to self-censor yourself. Like, right. Just let let you be you. Let you do the thing that you do, and if it's if it fits, it fits, and it'll go perfectly. And if it doesn't, somebody will come to you and be like, "Hey, man, this didn't fit." Right. 
Yeah, I think the other half of that battle is being able to take the feedback when you get it, which... Uh, yeah, yeah, being whole, able to... <laughs> whole separate issue, but but like the you're right. You're 100% right in that uh, uh, authors have a, chan- uh, a tendency to outsmart themselves, writers in general, where they're like, they think they know the audience will or won't like something before they've even committed it all to paper. And that's just too soon to, to kneecap your best ideas. So, Well, is it fair to say that to a certain point, there's a reason they pay editors just don't turn in something sloppy. Well, right. The pros should be as tight as you can make it, the copy. And and obviously, when it, when it comes to mechanical stuff, you shouldn't just loosely write the idea of the rule. You should make an attempt to formally write whatever the rule is in rules language as tight and concise and correct as you can. Now, what I'm talking about is the mechanical content of the rule, like what it's actually doing. Uh, those I, I tend to be as wild and crazy as I can imagine within at least the context of what makes sense to, to that particular job I happen to be on. Right. That's, that's the whole point of this hobby. Is it not, is it not the right, whole point of this hobby? The I whole point of this hobby is to be as wild and as crazy as you can within content. Yeah, I'm with you. 100%. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, I've said that the right, the, the difference for me between tabletop RPGs and computer RPGs is that in a tabletop RPG, as long as I can think about it, I can try it. Sure, yeah, <laughs> that's true. No, it's supposed to be the Willy Wonka's land of pure imagination or whatever, right? Well, uh, I think Star Wars, you know, you having worked on it so much, right? Star Wars is a very fantastical, spectacular, over-the-top setting. And weird. Like, they always try to add something weird into Star Wars. There's a lot of strange stuff right like the the cantina of course to us seems it's a trope at this point it's a staple but at the time it was like uh uh almost a joke to walk in and see this like motley bar of like people from cheers or whatever but they're all like weird aliens or or you know the the musical performers in java's palace or whatever like those were very strange things uh at the time even though they're considered you know tropey standards now so I, I think, yeah, you, you can't be afraid, especially with something like Star Wars, where it gives you permission to have things as weird as like space whales now. Uh, and of course, there's a certain segment of fans that every new weird thing that gets added is the thing that's too far and ruins it. But like they've been adding weird things all along. You just you were just used to the old weird things like uh, savage, primitive teddy bear cannibals or whatever like that's a weird thing from return of the jedi that's a weird choice to make but but you know it works because it's built on 30 other weird choices that that's what makes it wonderful so every every time i laugh every time i read an article that's like they added this to star wars and i've jumped the shark and i'm like you where were you where were you like 20 years ago like (laughs) Where you been this entire time? They they jumped sharks way back when. They they will jump a literal shark. I'm sure. Yeah, very I'm soon. sure at some and point. They, they, they have. They're just called pergill. They yeah. more yeah, like no, humpback whales. Space whales, man. The space whales. I love space. how they brought them back in Ahsoka too. They 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 were amazing in Ahsoka. They were great in the Rebels oh, cartoon too. It's it's so funny. I just it kills me it's, every time. I'm like, you really? You're leaving? Okay, bye. All right, see ya. I'll see you in three months when the next right. thing drops. Sure. Right. <laughs> well, I think you might have a unique perspective on this, Keith, too, from being as deep into the EU and the fan content that you were. I wonder if, as fans, sometimes we overestimate our ownership 
of the the IP or whatever instead of like we're just the consumers. It, yeah, yes, they've encouraged, you know, be it by the role playing game, whatever, to be interactive, but in the end, we're still the consumer buying or consuming the product they're giving us. If you don't like it, you don't have to buy that thing, but that doesn't. <laughs> sure. Yeah. There, there's a, a fan entitlement problem throughout all of sci-fi and fantasy. I would say a little bit of one, but uh, that's okay. I try to take it just from a, the concept of like the fans are passionate and they all have in their head an idea of how things should go and what they're interested in seeing. And that doesn't always line up with how Lucasfilm sees their IP, which is first and foremost as an IP for children, which which I think uh, those of us 40 and up fans, it's hard to stomach, hey, what do you mean Star Wars isn't only aimed directly at me? I've been here <laughs> since day one. But that's the reason why Star Wars also endures, is that it's constantly capturing a new generation of young fans. And uh, there, there is some content that's, a little more uh, uh, older fan appropriate, especially now you start to see uh, content aimed at different age groups, right? Like the Mandalorian season one is not aimed at the same group that the Clone Wars season one was, was aimed at necessarily, right? The same mm -hmm. age demographics anyway. So yeah, I think, uh, I think that's just part of it. I will say when you get to write on an IP that you're also a fan of, it's humbling real quick when you have an idea of how you think sh things should go and it turns out that uh, Lucasfilm or your own editor has a different idea and you have to remind yourself that uh, you're a professional and you're here to service their vision as a freelancer, not necessarily impose your own. So uh, that, that was a, a hard lesson I had to learn on the first, the very first job, I think. I, I kind of uh, suggested an idea to Sam, I think. He was like, no, let's not do that. And I made my case for it, and he's like, okay, I hear you, but still no. And uh, then I think I tried to make my case a third time. He's like, well, you could do it my way, or I could find someone who will. And I was like, okay, I guess I guess that's that lesson <laughs> learned, uh, importantly. So, yeah, it's it's humbling quick, and you, you get, I think, I for me anyway, I developed, I think, a much healthier relationship with my fandoms, having had that behind-the-scenes experience of how many people and how many competing visions there are and uh, uh, how many layers a lot of this stuff has to go through and and just how hard it is to to get even just an RPG book out the door, let alone a movie or a TV show or something like that, where I'm sure all these things I'm talking about are exacerbated times a million. So, uh, uh, you know, that anything gets made at some level, especially these things that take 100, 200, 300 thousands of people when you're talking about the movies to, to execute that anything even gets out the door and released at all is, is a miracle and that anything's ever been good doubly. So, so, well, I don't know. I'm happy with most of what Dave Filoni does. So I'm good there. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, we had that conversation a while ago that we, we just think they should just hand star Wars to Dave Filoni and let him run for a while. I mean, in some regards they have, at least he has, he has a corner of things to do yeah. kind of what he wants to do with it seems from the outside but uh yeah i think uh dave filoni just he he's where a lot of the he is who a lot of the fans are and he's also super talented and creative and uh um he delivers on the experience that a lot of fans over let's say 25 want so yeah he's popular for good reason because he's really good at what he does on top of those other qualities hey, but, Steve. you know we'll see yeah 
because uh, this will mean a lot to you and not a lot to you, Keith. I'm sorry. Okay. Did you know that Dave Filoni's from Mount Lebanon? No. He went to Edinburgh up in hmm. Erie. I didn't know. That. I I Googled. I, he's semi-local to us. Yeah. Yeah, I know he's a big Pittsburgh Steelers guy, right? I didn't or, no, no, Penguins. Is it, it's, oh, uh, is he a Pensman? Yeah. It's uh, Savage Press is like the Darth Maul's brother or whatever, and he's like gold and black. Oh, yeah. Specifically right. because those were the sports team's colors that. Well, that could be. <laughs> actually, ironically, our three major, well, quote unquote, the Pirates are technically major league. All three of our major league sports teams in Pittsburgh have the same colors. I'm not sure if he's a football guy or a hockey guy, but it's, it's one uh, it's, or the other. He's, he's a Penguins fan. You there were right. Uh, you know who else yeah, actually was crazy. from Mount Lebanon? And this could explain her showing up in Rebels and uh, Bad Batch, whatever, is uh, Ming-Na Wen. Hmm. Oh, okay. That might explain some of that. She's great. Um, oh, that character is great. I loved her in um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. too. Oh, sure. Sure. The so cavalry. The Wilkes- I'm gonna try and um, I'm gonna yeah, send you this image. Okay, Sorry. go ahead. Keep, keep um, talking. Now you've distracted me. I don't remember what I was thinking. This happens Dave a lot, by the way. <laughs> but uh, like, okay. But I think some of that is Dave, in a sense, is that fan that's above 25, right? You know what I mean? Like, I, or at least that's my perception. You know, I don't. I've never met him. I've never anything. You know. I got to meet him, I think, twice, uh, both at Star Wars Celebration. And uh, I have a picture somewhere of me with Dave Filoni, uh, handing him a Fandom Comics t-shirt, if you could believe it. But uh, yeah, he was, it was like season one of Rebels, or of Clone Wars hadn't even come out yet, is when I met him. So he was like just doing the press tour at that celebration for the show. He came to one of the after parties I had sort of weaseled my way into for, maybe it was the Force.net, or it was... I don't think it was a 501st party, but uh, oh, yeah, so I, I got to meet him and hang out with him for like maybe two or three minutes tops. Like, not like he'd remember me or anything, but for me, it was a big deal, especially now as we've seen him continue to uh, rise. But, I just posted it in our green room channel that's right above the one we're recording in. But apparently Dave, according to Steve, designed a jersey for the Penguins minor league team that plays in the other end of the state. You'll have to look at the image. See if it. My fear is I'm going to click this and I'll never find my way back here. But no, oh, it, it won't kick you out of voice. That that uh, uh that makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> that makes perfect sense. I kind of want it. Like I want to know where I can order one. <laughs> yeah, and that's a guy where uh, uh, man, what a cool job he has, right? But he can write, he can draw, he can like he's a very, very, very talented dude. So and skilled. Like I'm sure he worked very hard to acquire those talents and skills oh i'm sure and had to pass significant tests of muster to get where he is sure sure but yeah star wars always has this thing where uh, um you know I, i'm 45 now so my star wars was always the classic trilogy that's the star wars i grew up with so if there's a flaw in the classic trilogy i don't see it because i still see it with the eyes of a five-year-old now when the prequels came out i was like i don't they the first one came out in 99 so i was 20 so I was in my 20s when the prequels came out, and like I remember everybody agreed that these were bad movies when they came out. Nobody was like, oh man, this is the greatest movie of all time when they saw episode one for the first time. Doesn't mean I didn't see it 50 times. Doesn't mean it doesn't, you know, hasn't grown on me over time. But, but people, fans in general, were upset about the prequels when they were new. 
I think the Clone Wars show did a great job of rehabbing some of the prequels' lesser qualities and highlighting its best qualities, which were amazing design for all the ships and the armor and the clones. There's the locations. There's a lot of cool stuff to like about the prequels outside of the movies, I guess. But then, you know, you get far enough away from it, and now this sequel trilogy comes out, and everybody universally agreed that, that well, those were terrible. And I'm sure in 10 or 15 years, those will be rehabbed too, and they'll get looked at through the same rose-colored glasses that uh, we currently view the prequel trilogy. Well, I will say from my perspective, Clone Wars gave me an Anakin that made Revenge of the Sith much more logical. Yeah, I don't think you're alone in that. I think, uh, uh, yeah, like I said, it rehabbed a lot of the, or retconned, if you want to say instead, a lot of the, the, the Clone Wars movies to help build that bridge between two and three, where it feels like we skipped the meat of the problem or conflict or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I get, but, you know, from a budget, et cetera, standpoint, you, you know, how many seasons of Clone Wars did they make? How much, you know, now, no, in the end, I think it was it. like seven, but like, when did they cut it off? It was like season five or something, right? Um, and then I think we got six and seven were like after it was canceled and they had moved on to rebels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, I think you're right, but it had been canceled. Uh, I want to say it had been canceled twice. I want to say they canceled it. it, Came back. I think like it was canceled at five and then like a season released years later after it was canceled. And it was never like back and we're doing multiple more seasons. It was just, here's a special like the unreleased Clone Wars episodes or whatever that they refinished. And then then they came back years later and did a season seven. And yeah, then now it's once right again. On uh, I think it's something like that. I could be off, but uh, I'm sure somebody will correct me. But uh, that's one <laughs> thing you can me. rely on the Star Wars audience to do is correct you if you're wrong. Was, uh, <laughs> uh, I think the, the most scary job I ever had for FFG was uh, the Clone Wars books, which were also my favorite books to work on. But I had that section where I had to do the stats for like Obi-Wan or whatever. And the whole time I'm doing those stats, like the whole, I don't know, 20 minutes I spent doing them. I was like, I just know nobody's, that somebody's going to complain about these being, you know, wrong. Because it's impossible to do those characters real justice in a stat block that, and, and, and then still have that stat block actually be usable at a table in any way, shape or form. Because like Anakin uses probably every talent in every book we've ever done at some point in a cartoon movie or whatever and obviously you can't build a a stat block that gives him every single force power in the game and every single talent in the game unless you cheat it and say like master of everything and this character can use any talent in any book like unless that's the rule like you you can't these characters aren't buildable that way so you know those are kind of thankless tasks when you're you have to like uh construct the like central figure main character type characters of anything because it's just impossible and then there's the balance right where he's like at my table we one shot at the darth vader npc it's like yeah but you have three thousand xp on every single jedi character at your table and then you went six on one against vader which is not something we see happen in the movies either so yeah the, the, some of those are the star wars audience will let you know when they're unhappy with you for sure well i think too though there's there's the context of it and you mentioned this when you were talking about like ready fight and I'm assuming just drive to a point, right? There are rules designed for when this is the focus and there are right. rules for when we just need a little bit of this, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I'm sure that that plays in to an extent when you're doing, like you said, like adversaries and stuff like that. So I think you're right. And um, 
my philosophy now when I run Genesis, I don't even want uh, a pre-generated adversary now anymore. I've moved to just like, I don't need that. I'll tell you when he's injured or dead or whatever. And if I need them to roll something or uh, a set of difficulty, I'll just tell you. I'll just decide in the moment uh, what I think the number of dice should be. Because I don't want to be tied down to a stat block. and I, I don't need that in my life. That's like an extra piece of paper or something I have to lug around with me. So That's an interesting state to get to. We did an interview a while ago. We were talking to a, a GM who ran a lot of actual play content on his podcast. And we were talking specifically about timing and pacing. And he said that was one thing that he's done a lot. He doesn't actually track, you know, hit points or health or whatever. He's got a mental clock going where I need this fight to last this long. At this point in my time bracket, I need this to happen, whether the players are there or they just see it happen in the distance. And it sounds like you're kind of at that same stage. A little. I think uh, where we might differ is it sounds like, and I could be putting words in your mouth and you could be putting words in their mouth. I don't know. But uh, uh, it sounds like they're imposing a clock on the players, whereas I think my instinct is to uh, try to react to the vibe of where the table's at. If this fight's been going on for what feels like too long, we're going to get through it a little bit quicker all of a sudden. And, you know, vice versa. If, if it's like, if it feels like this fight's about to end too soon, then I'll do something to make it last a little bit longer. And uh, I, think, uh, I think people confuse when it comes to like, uh, game design and running the game. They're two very different things. I think when you're running the game, your goal is to give players a good experience. It's not necessarily to make sure all the the math maths out equally versus every other session of this game that's ever happened. I, I don't think that's that important, at least to me. I'm sure for some players in some games, it's, it's a must. But I, I think I look at Genesis and Star Wars specifically is very much on the storytelling side of what an RPG game can be. And therefore, to me, the most important part of running it is that we're having a good time and telling a good story. And whether that means I'm just deciding how big dice pools are in the moment, at least from the GM side of things, then, then that's what it means. And I don't, I don't mind fudging the rules. I think Genesis is one of those systems where, like, if you understand the core central system mechanic of gather up dice, make a check, cancel the symbols, and narrate the result. As long as you're doing that, I think you're still playing Genesis. And uh, anything within that, I think you're, you're good, you know? Fair. It sounds to me like you're, you're both handling the same issues just from a different angle. Yeah, that's what it feels like to me, too. You know. uh, which, which is great, because like my way is certainly not the only way, right? It's just what works for me. And I'm also uh, incredibly lazy when it comes to being a GM or running a game. I don't want to prepare something for eight hours before I run a game. I hate the very idea of that. I want to show up and make it up as I go, if at all possible, which uh, is ironic because my job is to write these books that people can study and prepare to run encounters <laughs> for ahead of time. But I don't know if it's a reaction to that, maybe, right? Where it's like, I do that for work, for fun, and we're just going to wing it. But uh, uh, I know I heard an old episode of Order 66, and I mentioned this a couple episodes, that Jay himself is known for running games by literally taking a piece of paper, writing yeah. the alphabet down, assigning something Star Wars-y to each letter, and there he goes. I've seen him, when he ran a game for me, like, it was maybe between my first and second job. They had, like, some event, and I got to go in and, and 
be in a game that Jay was running, like a little 30-minute game. And what he did is he went around the table and he said, everybody I point to, when I point to you, you're just going to say one word that for you is what, what Star Wars means. So maybe your word is like lightsaber or the force or smuggling or John Williams music, whatever. Whatever you say that, that is the thing that means Star Wars to you. And he would take these like five, six words and he'd make up something just, yeah, completely improvised 100% in the moment, on the spot for, again, it's 30 minutes. So it's like an encounter with a little bit of set dressing before and after. But uh, uh, I'm sure he runs entire four-hour games like that, too. I love Jay. I still talk to him all the time. He is usually, and has been, I think four or five times now, he's the final guest speaker that we bring in at Adventure, Writer, Adventure Writing Academy, the little online school I run. He does a four-hour seminar on game design uh, for our final class. So I get to see Jay at least once a year, it feels like, uh, still, and, and learn from him. I still learn something new in that seminar, even after seeing it like six times now. So yeah, he's real smart, real just naturally gifted and creative. and uh, But, you know, also has studied games and game design and plays just every game that comes out. So his his sort of database for what games can do and how they can work and what they could be is infinitely larger than than mine and, and most people that I know. Like if we went to Dallas Games Marathon where Gamer Nation was and brought Jay Little around, I, I'm willing to, to bet that uh, over half of just the board games on that incredibly insane extended board game shelf, I'm going to guess he's played over half like and, and could tell you something about it, right? When we had him on a couple years ago, I forget he told us his RPG library, like in physical, yeah, it's nuts. Was like multiple thousands of of games. He just had a flood too. I think he lost some stuff, unfortunately, but uh, which is a shame. But that's what happens. Yeah, but he even said he said you know on a lot of them he says no, I'm never going to get to play him. He said, but I read him. He said because so many times there's that one little nugget of something in this game yeah. that I can use, you know, as inspiration or whatever to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. And he's uh, just really good at making connections that way and, and uh, being able to take influences and translate them to something completely different where like, if he said, Oh yeah, that thing that I did, that was influenced by this. You'd be like, how are those two things related? But he'll be able to explain like how we got there. You know what I mean? It's, mm -hmm. it's just interesting. I could talk to him for forever, forever and never get uh, bored. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, I was going to say we're at, it give or take normal time for us. So you got a, you've mentioned this adventure writers Academy. You do, you want to talk a little bit about that. Anything else you want to have, you know, shout out for yourself, website, anything like that. Social sure. media. So the adventure writing Academy is a year long writing program that I, uh, uh, helped set up and run. Uh, I have a, a good friend of mine who's a professional teacher. She teaches the classes. I come in and, uh, um, usually take the class with you. Uh, time permitting. And we also usually, I think for eight of the 10 standard class sessions uh, that you get with the program, we bring in a guest student, which is another writer, editor, somebody in the in the writing industry that's published and has worked. They take the class with us as well. It's usually their first time having an Adventure Writing Academy experience. So they're kind of learning with you. And we so you get 10 regular classes and then you get that aforementioned uh, Jay Little seminar class. So it's 11 classes. It's. I think right now we charge you a hundred bucks a month for a year, but we're we're probably going to raise the prices before the next one because we haven't 
raised prices since we launched in like 2017 or whatever. And it's time because it's, you know, hundred bucks Everything doesn't go as far up. as it did in 2017 anymore. Nope, uh, no yeah. So prices are probably about to go up, but we just finished a, a unit. We put a big emphasis on if you could, if you could speak, if you have good oral um, skills, then you probably have good writing skills. You just haven't discovered how those two things are connected yet in your brain. Uh, we make you write in class a lot and then read the garbage that you wrote in class including people like me, like I will write in class and read the garbage I wrote in class, which, you know, it, it'll suck because it's a first draft, but we'll get you over writer's block. If that's ever been a problem for you, you'll get to meet a lot of people in the industry. The class is very focused on like people who want to work in the industry, people who want at the end of a, it's a year long. You only get one class a month. We load you up with a ton of homework assignments. We make you read a lot. We make you write a lot. It's intense. Like you need to make it a priority if you want to get the most out of it. But I want to say like a third, uh, I think a third or just over a third of the people who have finished our class have gone on to find work. Uh, we've had students like uh, Ian Houlihan, Christopher Hunt, Brett Bowen, uh, a lot of people you've had on the show and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of Gamer Nation type people. Darren, uh, Darren West has been uh, uh, one of our students um, among many, many others mm. that are familiar names. So, yeah, we, we have a, a good track record of people, you know, finding work after finishing the class. I think uh, you got to meet a few of the current students at last Gamer Nation Con. We had a good showing at Gamer Nation Con. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, that's the class. You could find it at adventurewritingacademy.com. And you could check it out for yourself or, or, you know, just contact me directly and tell me you'd like to register. We're in an open registration period right now, which is uh, informal and just... We wait till we get about eight people interested in the class, and then uh, uh, we start setting dates and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, that's that. And then, uh, as you said, I also have Just Drive is my most recent product, along with uh, my most recent professional product was uh, the Twilight Imperium book, I think, which is just under a year old. I need some new stuff to come out. But, uh, yeah, both of those things, check them out, pick them up. And uh, I think that's all I have for myself. I don't maintain a personal website anymore. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, very awesome. We'll put links to all that down in the show notes for anyone that wants to go look for that. All right. Well, with that, let's go ahead and move into Game of the Week. Woohoo! Game of the Week! Game of the Week! Game of the Week! All right. So, you know, I kind of explained this to Keith. Would you like one of us to go first so you kind of get a feel for our format of how we do this? Okay. Yeah, sure. Go for it. Yeah. All right. So you want to go first? Or do you want me to, Steve? I can go first. Mine's easy. All right. Let me get my pen. Let me get my link ready. And so my game is currently pay what you want on drive through RPG. It's 12 pages. It is called A Fistful of Draculas. I think I looked at this this afternoon. Yeah, I picked it up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. So it's now this is the one I looked at, but okay. It's pretty much exactly what it says on the cover. It is a spaghetti western with rules for vampires. It's as easy to learn, perfect for one shots, character creation takes minutes, uh, using a unique system, everything you need to run the game other than dice. And I read it over. It looks pretty awesome, honestly. I, I'm excited. This looks like a lot of fun. Uh, I'm a sucker for I don't know weird mashups like uh western vampires it has the most awesome name like no question 
It does. It does. And I could easily see myself running a very spaghetti-esque spaghetti western with this. It does. It, it, it the title alone makes me want to play it. Yeah, that's what I th- that's what I said. And then it was pay what you want. So I was able to throw the creator a couple bucks while also not paying an arm and a leg. Mm-hmm. That's cool. All right. Would you like to go next, Keith, or would you like me to? Sure, I'll go next. I'll put my link in the chat here. So mine is a Kickstarter project called Wizard Van, which is being done by a friend of mine, uh, a guy who I worked with a couple times on the Star Wars RPG named James Michael Spahn. This Kickstarter just went live uh, on February 6th, and it's over in like a week. So it's a real short one, but it's the role-playing zine where rock never dies, and it has art of a sweet van with a wizard on it, as you would expect. So James is uh, an OSR type of guy, which I know is not necessarily the me and Steve bread and butter of uh, uh, game systems. But, uh, you know, I love James a lot. He's a good guy, and I want to see his Kickstarter do well. So you should check it out. Now, this looks dope. And I'm I'm yeah. just old enough to remember the airbrushed vans being <laughs> like I was a little young, but I'm like a year or two older than you, I think. But funny story about that. I had to run to the hardware store to pick up a couple things earlier and I passed a fantastic airbrush van. It was like, it was okay. It was newer than it should have been. Cause it was like a nineties Ford. Uh, what do they call those? Econoline. Econoline vans. Oh, okay. But it had a wonderful wizard p- painting on the side of it. And I was like that thing, they know what's up. <laughs> That's great. I, these type of things though, like this, again, this feels like it's, you know, OSR is, is its own thing, right? And it's not what I want to play all the time, but like this kind of feels like it has that vibe similar to like Toxic Lords in a way where it's just kind of crazy over the top. Like this is like halfway between that and Heavy Metal Wizard Sorcerers. For sure. Yeah. And this actually isn't an OSR product itself. It's a rules light thing. Uh, so it'll be a lot of like one page games and stuff like that, I think. But uh, uh you know, it's cheap. It's five bucks for digital, ten bucks for hard copy or physical and digital together. I guess bundled is ten. Oh, so uh, cool. you know, a good price point, a really cool aesthetic, and uh, um, it'll it'll probably be a lot of fun and and worth your your uh, couple of bucks. Oh yeah, no, this looks. I I may have to pick this up. I've been being a good boy and not spending a ton of money on Kickstarter lately, but I may have to pick this up. <laughs> All right, so I found one. So, Keith, you you won't necessarily know this, but Steve knows, and most of our listeners know, I'm a big Delta Green fan. Mm -hmm. So I found a game that is basically Delta Green meets Delta Force. It's called Task Force Raven. It is a setting, supplement, whatever you want to call it, for Savage Worlds. Um. These are like, it's like checking all of your boxes, man. <laughs> it I is, right? You you were like, oh, I'm going to read Savage Worlds. And you're also this huge Delta Green fan. And then you're also a sucker for like Delta Force and those 80s action movies. This is, this ticks all the boxes. <laughs> right? Doesn't it I feel though? like this might as well just have your name on the cover. And <laughs> like, like it, all it needs to, all it needs to add is like some, you know awesome like, you know opeth or something like you need to open the drive-through page and just get yelled at by some 
thrash happening. Like, yeah, it, it, like there's a line down the, the listing. It says vampires in Iraq, giants in Afghanistan, gin in Yemen, and red mercury. Like, this is pulp action Delta Green in Savage Worlds, which I think would be spectacular for that. I think what this will do more so than what Delta Green does, like Delta Green, and I, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Delta Green feels a lot like the, like, interpersonal horrors of seeing things that shouldn't be seen while also dealing with things that shouldn't be seen. This feels like that's another day at the office as you shoot Bigfoot in the head with a desert Eagle. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> right. This is you're right. Delta green is in a lot of ways, a personal horror game. You know, it's, it, to me, the core of the game, especially in campaign form is about the degradation of the agent due to all the crap they go through. This is, Duke Nukem, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, we're here to kick ass and chew bubble gum and we're all out of bubble gum, but there's a shoggoth. <laughs> oh, I think, I think this looks great. I, I'm so excited to, to see you put this on a table. I really hope you do at some point. Yeah, it, it's already on my wish list now. They've got a whole bunch of options for print on demand and PDF. PDF alone will set you back 10 bucks the rest of this stuff, you know, varying prices as you go up. You know, soft cover, hard cover, standard premium, blah blah blah. But yeah, it's it's um, it's called the Rune Forge is the name of the creative collective. Hundred seventy-five pages. Too. Yeah, it, it, like I said, it, I, I like you said, Steve. It just ticks way too many boxes for me. Great art and design on, on what you could see of this. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I I have found something that I yeah, I'm probably going to have to buy me very shortly. And yet another excuse to learn savage worlds <laughs> no i know as if there wasn't enough excuses the savage rifts box set that's been sitting behind me for a year and a half uh uh and i had the pdf Rifts is uh the old old Rifts, one of the first games i ever played uh the first game i ever ran yeah. oh wow um yeah it was actually that was kind of the the setting that hooked me into rpgs and it's i didn't understand setting. why no one that i knew that had the books wanted to run it and I didn't know enough at the oh. time to know why no one would run it. So I'm like, I'll run it. And I ran like a two and a half year campaign in college. Oh, wow. We, me and my buddies played a lot, but we were like, I don't know, like 12 when that came out, 13, something like that, which is like, it's the ultimate setting for 13 year olds. But uh, 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 we had no idea how those rules worked. And, and it, we came to find out later. It wasn't just us, thankfully. But uh, Look, uh, I have said on the show before, and I'll say it again. There's only one person who has ever run a Palladium game completely rules as written. That is Kevin Simbieta. Everyone else <laughs> is still trying to find where that damn rule is in whatever book it's in. That's, I think you're correct. Well, with all that said, we want to thank you so much for coming on, Mr. Cappell, oh, talking to us. Very excited to see you at Gamer Nation Con this year and, and all of that fun stuff. As always, links to everything mentioned are in the show notes. You know, if you guys are listening to us, you can find us on Discord, Patreon. You know, if you, if you can't support us on Patreon, don't want to come join the Discord, at the very least, leave us a review. Uh, leave us uh, some stars. Leave us a review. It helps get our podcast out to other people. But as always, we want to remind everyone to be kind to one another and get out there and play some RPGs. Yep. Take care, y'all. 
intro and outro music by the band 12 noon you can email us at me and steve rpg at gmail.com you can find us on twitter and rpgs find us on facebook at me and steve rpg podcast on discord at me and steve rpgs and as always all of these links are in the show notes thank you and be kind to one another How much for the cigar? Cigar, 20 bucks, dog. You got to go down the street to the store and buy that.